Good evening and welcome. I'm Kevin Marinelli, Executive Director of the Program for Public Discourse. We're proud to present tonight's event, Debating the Minimum Wage, the inaugural installment of our Debating Public Policy series. First, however, as a program for public discourse, we want to acknowledge the importance of the discourse taking place in Minnesota and across the country this week concerning racial inequality. The Debating Public Policy series is designed to engage critical issues in contemporary public affairs while advancing public discourse through robust debate. The series will feature multiple debates each year in conjunction with our other panels and programming. Our theme next year is public discourse and democracy. We're often asked how we choose our topics for discussion. While there is no limit, litmus test to the topics we explore, our philosophy is simple. We strive to address issues that are topical, consequential, often contentious, and always challenging. We do our best to represent a wide range of views and speakers, and we welcome your suggestions for future potential topics and panelists. If you're a UNC student interested in becoming more involved with our program, we invite you to sign up to become an Agora Fellow, where we experiment with different models of public discourse over the year. In fact, last week, our Agora Fellows practiced debating the minimum wage issue, and Dr. Wimay was a guest and offered some really valuable insight to our students. Finally, I would like to remind you that our event is being recorded and will be available on, your, on our YouTube page in a few days. Now, please allow me to introduce tonight's panelists before I explain the format of the debate. A 2004 graduate of New York University, Luca Flavi is a labor economist studying gender discrimination in labor markets, labor market search and frictions, earning inequality across skill groups, the role of flexibility on wages, simultaneous marriage and labor market searches, intergenerational mobility and schooling decisions. Recently, he has completed work on the impact of the underrepresentation of women in top positions at firm and on the labor market institutions leading to informal labor contracts. Paige Wimay has several research projects looking at income inequality in the role of firms. She also has researched ESOP, employee share ownership plans and employee stock options and their impact on labor productivity, wages and turnover. Her research agenda is concentrated at the juncture of finance and labor economics. She is interested in how decisions studied in finance impact employee stakeholders, specifically how those effects are reflected in firm performance and hence corporate finance decisions. Her work has been published in the American Economic Review, Journal of Finance, Review of Financial Studies, and Journal of Financial Economics. Dr. Wimay worked at the Center for Clean Air Policy, an independent nonprofit think tank working on climate and air quality policy at the local, US national, and international levels. She received her PhD and MBA from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan and her BA from Dartmouth College. Now, I'd like to explain the format of tonight's debate. Uh, we are debating the minimum wage in general, but more specifically, we are debating President Biden's proposal to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 by 2024. Dr. Luca Flavi is going to be arguing the affirmative, meaning he's going to be advocating President Biden's proposal. And Dr. Uh, Paige Wimay is going to be arguing the negative, meaning she's going to be arguing against that proposal. 
As is custom in debate, Dr. Luca Flavi, representing the affirmative, will go first. Each panelist will deliver a 10-minute presentation arguing their position, followed by a five-minute rebuttal of the other's position before we open it up to questions from the audience. When we open it up to audience questions, you have a few options. One, you can simply sit and watch, or if you'd like to contribute a question, you can do so in one of two ways. You can offer a question using the Zoom Q&A model, or if you would like to ask your question live, you can simply raise your hand using the Zoom function and we will do our best to call on you so you can ask your question aloud and interact more so with our panelists. Now, I'll explain that again in a few minutes, but first we'll turn it over to our panelists beginning with Professor Flabby. Thank you very much. Let me share my screen. So I hope you can see the slide well. So we are debating the minimum wage. So more specifically, as it was said, the Biden proposal, actually proposal has been around for some time. So the proposal is to increase the minimum wage that currently is at 7.25 an hour to $15 an hour over the next four years. So if it was approved in 2001, it would go in effect at 15 in 2025. Just to give you an idea, a full-time, full-year minimum wage worker at the current level is earning about 15,000 a year. So we need to change something to increase the minimum wage at 15. As you know, uh, states can already increase the minimum wage on top of the federal. And if the federal would go up to 15, this will, yes, change something because there are currently 21 states that are at the federal 725. The other 29 states and Washington DC have all increased on top of that. Some of that have approved legislation going up to 15 and some of that are already at 15. So is this a reasonable proposal? I think to answer this proposal, we have to answer three questions. So first, is a mandatory minimum wage something reasonable? Why we should have that? And if that is reasonable, why should that be mandated at the federal level? And then suppose we agree that it's reasonable to mandate that at the federal level, should we increase it from, com from current levels and should we increase it all the way to 50? So in the next you know, nine minutes, I will try to argue or at least to give an answer to these three questions. So as you have seen from the introduction, I'm an economist, I'm a labor economist. So I will give a fairly narrow view and discussion of all the issue around the minimum wage, very focusing on the economics. There are broader issues that I, I will not discuss here very much, but I'm happy to give you an opinion later on in the Q&A, but clearly that's not my field. So first question, why a mandatory minimum wage? So a mandatory minimum wage is really a price floor. So that particular price, that is the wage, cannot go below a certain nominal level. So if you want, is a form of price control, something we don't do very much in market economy. Why may be justified here? Well, because labor markets are different. What we trade in the labor market are really hours of work that are very different from trading, I don't know, shoes or, or iPhones. Why they are different? Well, first of all, the great, first of all, the great majority of us lives through labor income. Right? Just very few 
live off capital income. Most of us live through labor income. If our wage is too low, it's not a living wage, simply we cannot live. So there are some other government transfer that need to be introduced or some more dramatic consequences that happen at the socioeconomic level. Second, workers are also consumers. So since we live out of labor income, that's the income that we can spend through consumption. And as we know, consumption is a big part of aggregate demand of aggregate GDP. So wages that are too low are effectively depressing aggregate demand. Finally, labor markets are peculiar because they don't really follow the standard supply and demand model, or if you want, the perfectly competitive model of market. There are some inherent friction within labor market that make a difference, make a difference to how you know, quantity and price adjust. So this is a little bit technical. I know I could spend the entire time discussing just this aspect. So please ask me questions uh, later on in the Q&A. I will try to give you some intuition of what I mean by that. But for now, let me leave it at that. So then if there is this peculiarity of the labor market, I think it may make some economic sense to impose a minimum wage. So first of all, it's a policy that compared to other transfer policy or to other anti-poverty policies is easy to implement, easy to enforce. We know the wages are reported, we know what they are, we know the hours worked. And the low implementation cost, by that I mean that is not, we don't need to collect some taxes and then create some transfer with all the administrative costs that are uh, implied with that. And it's also very well targeted. Clearly it's a policy that wants to affect mainly low wage earners. And so these are exactly the people that you are targeting. Second is a policy that may generate welfare gains in the aggregate, not only for workers, not only for firms, but for the economy in the aggregate. Why that's the case? Well, let's look at the cost. The benefit is pretty clear. You know, there is more income, there is more consumption, there is more demand. What could be the cost? From the firm side, of course, there are higher labor costs if the minimum wage goes up. That's the price of labor. Those costs can be reduced exactly by the demand effect that I was saying before. These people earn more, they will buy more, you can sell more of your product. If you want, we, go, we can go back to, you know, Henry Ford at the beginning of the last century, that he, he doubles wages the day to the next because he understood that was the way for the worker working at the factory buying actually the car that were produced there and increase demand. The cost for the workers could be a cost in terms of employment. If the price is high and firm ask less labor, they may remain without a job. But those costs are exactly the cost that could be reduced by the labor friction I was mentioning before. In short, labor friction means that there is some monopsony power in any labor relationship. It's very difficult to meet or slightly difficult, depending on the context, to uh, arrive at a meeting between a worker and employer. What is clear, this can be more or less difficult, but it's costly. All the jobs are not available all at the same time. You may not know where the job are. The firm may not know if you're the right worker for the job. So these friction are costs that can be avoided if you can keep the worker working for you for a long term, longer time, for example. So this creating some, the possibility that the, what you are producing in a given job is actually worth much more than the wage that is paid to you. So these are so, sometimes called surplus 
or rents or whatever you want to call it. So, but this gap between the marginal productivity of the worker and what the worker is produced uh, give you some leeway, some wiggle room to increase wages without losing profitability on those wages. And so without necessarily eliminating that uh, job. So this creates the potential for welfare increasing. So workers that can say, okay, maybe now firms may hire a little bit less. They can say, well, I can wait a little bit longer, but then when I find a job, the job will be at a higher wage and will provide a living wage for me. This is also another important point to, to keep in mind. When we say there are labor costs or there could be loss of employment, it doesn't mean that some people will be hired and they will have a war forever and the other people will lose their job forever. The labor market is very dynamic. There is churning and turnover all the time. And those are exactly the issue that could be affected through this mechanism with friction that I was mentioning before. On the firm side, the trade-off may be worth it because maybe you will pay that worker a little bit more, but you will lower turnover and you will have better matches. So then if from economic theory, minimum wage can have some reason to be, why this minimum wage should be legislated at the federal level? Of course, this is a question that goes beyond economics. It's more if you want political economy or even politics itself. I think federal minimum wage could be reasonable because they are a floor to the other price floor that could be imposed by either state. And this gives some homogeneity to start with, and then there could be difference as state and city see things. And there is an advantage to have this legislation at the federal level because there is more clarity of what the floor is across the country. These reduce some distractions, distortions, and also uh, federal mandates we know could be easier to enforce thanks to that clarity. The last point is a little bit more complicated. Again, I, I don't have enough time to explain it, but it could help to diffuse uh, economic growth and to transfer economic growth between areas that are more high wages to areas that are living low wage. And I will happy to, to talk about more at the end. So I'm running dramatically close to the 10 minutes. So let me try to give an answer to the last question. So if the minimum wage at the federal level may be reasonable, do we want to increase it? And should we increase it now? So I think increase it now, I have a fairly easy job here. Historically, we are almost at an historic low. So here I'm plotting the value of the federal minimum wage in real term that is deflated. So it's all at 2021 uh, prices. And as you can see, has been increased last time in 2009. And now that value in nominal, uh, that was the same in nominal term in real values is 70% lower. And it's almost at an historic low. But then should we increase it? But should we increase it exactly at 15? What this 15 has that is very special? Well, here I have to admit 15 is not the magic number. It's not the only number that could exist for sure. If you had left it to economists, it would have been a much weirder number. It would be 14.7892 or something like that. So 15 is really a compromise. It's a compromise. And again, let me re-emphasize, it will not be 15 the day after the legislation is approved. There is a period over which will be introduced. And I think this 
period of implementation should be part of the discussion much more than it is. So why do I think it's a reasonable compromise? Well, first of all, it's been tested on many markets. As I was saying at the beginning, states have increased to 15, some cities have increased to 15. So we have some evidence of the empirical effect of these 15. Second, and again, these are estimates, but there have been estimates that support that these 15 will guarantee a living wage across the country for everybody, which is something that's not happening at the current level, or will not clear that it will happen at level in between, I don't know, something like $10 an hour. And finally, and let me give you the last uh, figure and then I will stop. I think we'll have to, we'll help to recover some of the um, productivity that workers had over time. So this is a two figure, these two curves give you the cumulative growth of worker productivity over uh, a long period of time from the second world war from 48 until 2018. And the second one gives you the growth of the hourly compensation. So as you see for a very long time, they went sort of together when they were increasing productivity in labor, wages were going up more or less at the same rate. But these two curves have completely diverged starting from the 70s with productivity keep growing quite robustly and hourly compensation stagnated. And this is something that I'm sure you have, you have heard uh, quite a lot. So an increasing minimum wage, quite significant, I think will help to recover some of this increasing productivity. To give you a reference, if we were bringing it at the level that of the 60s and we will increase it in proportional productivity, the minimum wage will be much higher, will be about $20 an hour. Okay, let me stop here because I've been going already over time and here we go. Thank you, Professor Flavi. And now I'm gonna turn, turn it over to Professor Wime, representing the negative. Wonderful, give me one moment to get the screen sharing going. Hopefully everybody can see my slides. So I was asked to take the other side of this debate and I'm going to talk about concerns with a $15 federal minimum wage that is universally applied and effective by 2025. So I wanna be very clear. I am not gonna be talking against minimum wage policies. In fact, I'm a strong proponent of minimum wage policies. And even this specific minimum wage policy, there's a lot here that I like. The crux of my argument is going to be that poverty among Americans working poor, this is a huge issue. And we need to do more to address it. The fact that so many Americans are working and unable to earn a living wage, unable to pay for basic necessities, this is a shame. We need to do better. And in my opinion, a policy that is going to be a higher minimum wage, but it's going to be a higher minimum wage that is set locally, that is optimized to a given local market and sort of maximizes the benefits, minimizes the cost, this is the best way to achieve that goal. Okay, so I wanna be clear, a $15 federal minimum wage is going to reduce poverty. So I'm going to refer to the Congressional Budget Office report. So this is this nonpartisan group 
And what they've done is they've estimated that a $15 federal minimum wage would lift 900,000 Americans out of poverty. So this is great. But the question is, at what cost? And my concern here is that while a $15 federal minimum wage will benefit a lot of Americans, it is also going to impose steep costs on a subset of Americans. And I'm concerned with labor market policies that are going to lead to greater inequalities. And so what are these costs? And so Luca went into a lot more detail. I'm just going to abstract away at the highest level. And if we just think of the basic economic relation, if we set a minimum wage too high, again, based on a local labor market conditions, then we're going to lead to employment losses. So just, you know, again, at a very high level, think of an employee at a firm, that employee, when they work a given hour, this contributes, let's say another $10 of business to that firm. If that company now needs to pay that given worker $15 an hour, it's not gonna make sense. And they're gonna end up letting go of this employee. And so, you know, the big question here is going to be how big are these employee employment costs gonna be? So I'm just gonna cite one paper here from the academic literature. This is by Newmark and Shirley, and this is a recent review article. So what they do is they look at every single paper on minimum wage and published in sort of our top journals, peer reviewed, and they try to see what they're gonna estimate. And nearly 80% of these studies find these negative employment costs. Okay, so let me go a bit more into the, the numbers. So this graphic here, this is my estimate of the US labor force. So each of those little icons, those represent 10 million workers. So again, relying on this nonpartisan CBO report, what do I expect is gonna happen with a $15 minimum wage? Well, I expect 17 million Americans are gonna see their wages increase to $15 an hour. I expect another 10 million Americans are gonna see modest wage increases above $15 an hour. And I expect about 1.4 million Americans are going to lose their job. And so you may look at this and say, okay, this is a trade-off I can live with. 27 million Americans, they're going to get this pay raise. I wish 1.4 million Americans weren't going to lose their job, but I can handle that kind of trade-off. What I want to emphasize, if you remember one thing from my talk, that this is not the way to think about this trade-off. The better way to think about this trade-off is we're going to think about the number of Americans that are benefit, but we also have to think about the intensity of the benefit for those, and then compare it to the number of Americans that are going to be harmed and the intensity of the harm. So again, using the numbers from the CBO report, what are the benefits? Well, I mentioned 27 million Americans are expected to get a wage increase. If I take that wage increase for those 27 million Americans, over the first 10 years that this policy is in effect, cumulative, it's estimated to be $509 billion in added payroll for those Americans. But what's on the other side of this? I mentioned 1.4 million Americans are expected to lose their job. Well, the cost for those Americans is really steep, estimated at $175 billion. Again, over 10 years, cumulative over all the employees who would lose their job. So a couple things to think about. Who are gonna be in this group? Well, some of these people are gonna be young workers. 
But another significant portion of this group are going to be the Americans within the low wage sector who are the least educated and the least skilled. So these are workers that are particularly vulnerable and they are gonna bear the steepest costs associated with these policies. And this 175 billion, this is estimated if I just look directly at lost wages. If I add non-pecuniary costs, so other costs that we know are associated with losing a job, this is just gonna go up and up. So we know when workers lose a job, there are consequences with their physical health, with their mental health, and their spillovers into the family. So increases in divorce, reductions in childhood educational attainment. So the key point I want you to get from this is that small employment losses, when we talk about, look, this minimum wage policy is gonna to lead to a lot of benefits, but have modest employment losses. Modest employment losses are still really important and we need to think about them. And we need to think about how best can we minimize these employment losses. So here's my suggestion. The federal minimum wage should be set optimally for each local market. A $15 flat minimum wage which applies evenly across the US is just bad policy. So what I have over here is a map of America. And for each state, let's look at Massachusetts. This color is gonna tell you the median wage relative to $15 an hour. And so if $15 an hour is the optimal federal minimum wage for Massachusetts, then it is not the optimal federal minimum wage for Mississippi where the median wage is currently $15. And in particular, I am worried that $15 is too high of a minimum wage for Mississippi, at least in the short term, you know, effective as of 2025. And I think a lower minimum wage, again, set on the local conditions. We don't wanna overshoot the minimum wage. I also think there's a concern with undershooting. So I know the idea here is the federal minimum wage would be the floor, state cities can act and add higher minimum wages, but this also assumes that all these local governments are going to effectively be able to adopt these policies. If we have the momentum to pass federal minimum wage legislation, why not pass federal minimum wage legislation that is optimal in every single local market? And the other thing I like about creating this federal minimum wage, so it's some sort of formula based on local wages, local prices, is then it can be adjusted every single year. So as we know, what has happened in the US is we go many years without adjusting the minimum wage. And this is bad for workers because over that period of time, their wages are being reduced due to inflation. And then suddenly we get a big jump. This is also bad for firms because firms like to know what is coming in the future. And if we have it based on a formula that's automatically adjusting, we don't have to worry about these concerns of inflation eating away at the minimum wage, and we give more policy certainty to firms. Okay, so in the time I have left, I wanna make a few other points. So first, a $15 minimum wage. I've talked about how it's gonna impact US workers unequally. It's also gonna impact US firms unequally. So a $15 minimum wage is gonna disproportionately hurt small businesses. So if you think about a higher minimum wage and you have in your mind, well, this is gonna take money out of, let's say some big shareholders of Amazon, you know, out of Jeff Bezos pockets and put it into the 
pockets of workers. That is not what is going to happen. When I was putting together these slides, I got a pop-up about Amazon telling me that they support a $15 minimum wage. They already have a $15 minimum wage. This is not going to harm Amazon. And in many ways, it's probably going to help Amazon because it is going to harm their small local competitors. Unfortunately, a lot of small businesses just aren't that profitable. And so raising the $15 minimum wage, they may not be able to afford that. And they're going to have to do layoffs and in the most extreme close their business. It's also going to impact consumers unequally. So one thing, you know, as we raise the minimum wage, we're also likely going to impact the price for goods and services. It's just going to cost more to produce a given good or to do a certain service. So we can think of this as inflation on sort of a macro scale. I'm not that worried about this. But there are two specific services where I think we could see very significant and sharp price increases. And that would be in the price of childcare and the price of home health care aids. Now, people who work in these markets, these are really hard work. They deserve to get paid $15 an hour. But I think if we're going to do that and we're going to expect very sharp increases in these two services, then we also need to think about subsidies because I am worried about the impact. If we suddenly increase the price of childcare, which is already very expensive in America, this is gonna discourage more women from being in the workforce. And if we incre increase the price of home healthcare aids, which is gonna impact primarily elderly Americans, disabled Americans, who often might be on a tight and limited budget, again, these are people who are not necessarily going to have the ability to absorb these changing costs. And so to conclude, I support a higher federal minimum wage, but I would like to see it set optimally for each market. So again, we can maximize the benefits, minimize the costs. And if I can take one more minute, um, I just want to say one more big picture comment, which is if the purpose of a higher minimum wage is to get more American workers up to, let's say, a living wage, then it's not clear to me that the minimum wage is the most efficient way to do this. So if we think, you know, there's a lot of support for a higher minimum wage. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we can get more money into the hands of low wage workers, but we don't have to do direct government subsidies to achieve that. So we have to think about, well, where then is this money coming from? So anytime I'm, you know, increasing the wages of a worker, it, it's coming from somewhere. And so it may be coming from higher costs of sort of goods or services, as I talked about on the previous slide. I think most of it's going to come from the fact that firms are just simply going to earn lower profits. And if we think about that way, it's effectively a tax on firms. In my opinion, kind of a clunky tax because it's taxing firms that employ more low wage workers, but it's a tax on firms. And so another way to think about this is we could actually just directly tax firms, do it in a progressive fashion tax the more profitable firms more, take that income, and then give it back to Americans as something like a universal basic income. The benefits of a universal basic income is that I could give a check to every American. So now I'm not just giving benefits to the lower wage working Americans, but I can also target those Americans who have the lowest wages of all, they're unable to work right now. And second, if I want to raise workers up to this you know, living wage, it's a bit tricky 
because the living wage is going to depend on your household characteristics. You know, how many dependents do you have? And we can't, you know, do that with a wage, but we can do that with a universal basic income where we can have different payments based on your household characteristics. And with that, I will turn the floor back to Kevin. Okay, thank you, Professor Wime. And now we're going to turn it to Professor Flabby for his response to your presentation, and then you'll have the opportunity to do the same. And this will be a five minute response. Thank you very much. Let me see how much is five minutes. Okay. So um, quickly, just two things about numbers. So the, the numbers on the cost and benefit from the CBO, uh, you know, are a good reference point, but they have a big problem in a policy like this because they are done, uh, here I read, under the assumption the nominal gross domestic product, which is the GDP, would be unchanged, as they always do. And this is a big problem with the minimum wage exactly for this demand effect that we were saying before. An increase in minimum wage, possibly with spillover effect on other wages, will have an impact, an expansionary impact on demand and will increase the GDP and will absorb a lot of those costs or a little, depending on the elasticity. But this elasticity exists, so there is the possibility. So those numbers that we saw are the absolute worst scenario that we are essentially sure is not going to happen. Second thing about the studies that on the paper that was mentioned, there is also a paper that we, we you know, it's a very good review paper. So there are a lot of studies on minimum wages. As you may expect, it's not easy to understand what is the impact of minimum wages, because of course, many things happen at the same time. So then there are some technicalities here. There are different ways to do those studies. So I will only say that the quality and the certainty, if you want, of those estimates within those studies are very different. If you conditional studies that have a very good identification strategy, which is to say, look at an economic area that is at the border between two states, one state has increased, the other state has decreased, then none of those studies find a significant negative employee effect. Sometimes they are even positive, okay? And they could be positive for what we say before. There could be some demand effect. There could be friction that say, you know, I'm making money on this worker anyway. So giving a little bit more money will not induce the destruction of that job. So these just the two things about the numbers. Second is the proposal of linking to, you know, more locally to the local economy. And again, I'm very, or, or indexing to, you know, some uh, measure of average income or in indexing to the some price CPI index and so on. So this is a very reasonable proposal. It's done in many countries. All the European countries have that. My only concern with the US is that uh, there is a risk of creating a sort of a poverty trap. The wage in that area are very low. We index the minimum wage at that very low wages. Since the wages are low, there is a little bit demand. There is little demand, low wages, people leave the area and they become poorer and poorer. 
So that's what I meant with this idea of lifting the minimum wage at the federal level, that we can transfer the growth from one state to the other. You start from the wages, then the demand will feed on that. There will be a reduction about migration. Possibly there will be even be migration and so on. Finally, on the universal basic income, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I'm totally in favor of that, okay? So why the minimum wage may still be reasonable, and I think why may still be reasonable for the US. I mean, it's clearly a second best policy, but as I was saying before, it's very easy and cheap to implement. The moment that you start to do complicated targeting and you say, okay, let's go buy family income. Let's collect what is the family income, what your spouse does, how many kids you have, are they living together and so on. There are a lot of administrative costs. It's not that it cannot be done, okay? And you know, some countries have been successful more than others. But there is that big cost. In, on paper, it's a great policy, the universal basic income to reduce poverty. But minimum wage is much easier to implement. And, and it's been a very, very popular exactly for that reason. And it's also a little bit less distortionary than, than taxing firm directly, because then again, every time you have to reallocate taxation, it could be done, you know, there are big administrative costs. Finally, about the sector that's been more affected, this, the care sectors, child care and so on, I agree those are the sector where there are a lot of minimum wage workers. What is less clear is that the labor costs are really the main drivers of cost there. So the fact that, for example, in uh, rich cities, childcare centers are very expensive is not because they pay their teachers a lot. It's because the real estate costs are very high. So I, I'm not sure what the elasticity are going to be there. And I think I already went beyond my five minutes. That's quite all right. Thank you, Professor Flavi. And now the rejoinder by Professor Wime. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you, Luca. I know this is pitched as a debate and, and we are supposed to be on opposite sides. The truth is I agree with almost everything you have said. So I'm just gonna pull on the things where I have some disagreement. And I wanna start by commenting on, on these past studies and what do we think are gonna be the unemployment or the employment effects? And so certainly there are some more recent studies and I know exactly the, the papers that you're thinking of that have shown very little, possibly no employment effects. The one thing I wanna emphasize is that most of these studies are looking at very unique cities and states that had a really vibrant job market and so they were the states who had sort of the selection and said, we could go ahead and implement a higher minimum wage. So there's something about the fact that we observe higher minimum wage in the cities that said, we can afford to do this. And so I'm not sure how well we can extrapolate this increase in the minimum wage in Seattle and apply that to Mississippi. Um, the second point you have about diffusion, I think is really interesting. And, and this is certainly a concern that if we have this very different minimum wage in Mississippi, is Mississippi just gonna kind of almost become very different and sort of segmented, segmented from the rest of the United States? Certainly a concern. 
I think the best way to address this is to make higher minimum wage, but make it very slow. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's just adjustment costs. And if we try to rush it and we try to bring Mississippi to $15 an hour minimum wage in four years, I am very worried about the short-term um, cost that that's going to impose. And I also do think to the extent that Mississippi would end up with a lower wage, it could actually do the opposite. It could attract jobs, particularly in the tradable sector, because now this is the place to go if you want to have lower wages. Um, and I think those were my main points. Okay. Thank you, Paige. And thank you, Luca. Okay. Uh, this is great timing. We're about halfway through our event tonight, and now it's time to open it up to audience questions. So again, please feel free to contribute questions in the Q&A, or you're welcome to raise your hand via the Zoom tool, and you can ask your question live. So I'll begin with one of the earliest questions we got, which is how uh, economists are generally divided on this issue today. And I, I want to ask a little more broadly too, how has that um, scholarly conversation evolved over time? Because to my understanding, there is more division on this issue than, than it used to be. And so I'm curious how and why that has evolved and, and either of you can take this. So I, I'm happy to continue with this order that we have and, and go first, if you don't mind. Is it, is it okay, Paige? Okay. So I would say that economies are less divided than they were. It depends, of course, uh, uh, how much back you go. So you declare my PhD date so people know that I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember also periods. You know, if you go back to the 80s, I think people would have said no minimum wage at all. And today we are here discussing at what level we put the minimum wage or when we phase it in. Uh, if you were sampling economies in the 80, they would have said no minimum wage, set it at zero. What is this thing with price control? Then as part of this evidence that's been collected, some very important paper came out, for example, in the early 90s. I think people, you know, have been pretty convinced that the employee effect are not as dramatic as a perfectly competitive model would predict. And that's also the other evolution in the profession. I think that most economists today would agree that labor market are not perfectly competitive. And by this, I mean the standard, you know, cross labor supply static model that, that you have uh, learned uh, or, or not better. But this standard model is a little bit different. And this was the point of friction I was saying before. So I would say on this, there is agreement. So if we agree that there are friction, if we agree the market are not perfectly competitive, then minimum wage policy, you know, are not crazy, or at least actually they could be a fairly effective policy. I mean, recent polls of economists, I think they say that maybe Two thirds, up to 80% of economies that they were polled by the Chicago Booth Business School agree that a positive minimum wage is not a bad thing. Then there is disagreement on the level, which is a little bit what you see today. You know, Paige is saying, you know, 15 is too much. Maybe for Mississippi, it will be better 10. So there is, I think, where the debate is, or as Paige was saying a moment ago, 
well, maybe 15 could be a good idea, but let's phase it in differently or a bit on, on a longer period. I think that's where the debate is. And then on the empirical studies, again, I think there are two type of empirical, three type of empirical studies. Of course, it's not easy to identify. Some have sharper identification. So no one will say, you know, what happened in Seattle, we can move it to Mississippi. So you have two things to, to, to check for that. You can say, okay, let me look at the state that have increased the minimum wage. Let me look at the state that have not and try to sort of weight a control group and a treatment group by making a mix, sort of a linear combination of these states so that they, they represent two similar experiments. Or as I was mentioning at the beginning, before, you take two states that are the border with each other, okay? So they are a very similar economy in that area. And then one state increase, the other does not. And then the studies have looked exactly at some of these uh, sectors that Paige was saying before, you know, uh, restaurant sector or people that work in the care industry and see how their employment has been affected. That's one of, of the sharper identification studies. Or you can have studies that are a little bit based more on the theory that we were saying before. I probably am going on, on too much, but let me just finish this point. You can have a model, a non-competitive model of the labor market use the data to estimate that model, and then actually compute as a counterfactual, what would be the welfare increase for workers and firms? Something that can take into account everything that we were saying now. Maybe I'm employed a little bit longer, but then I get a better match. The firm pays a little bit more, but then the turnover is reduced. So some of these studies uh, exist, and some of these studies also indicate that there is an optimal minimum wage that is positive. None of them say it's 15. These are studies that have been done in the past, but maybe if we were re-estimating now, 15 would be a reasonable number, but I'm sure it would be, you know, could be something different. Thank you, Luke. I answer. Paige, would you like to add anything to that about the evolution of this conversation in economics and finance? So again, agree. Um, that was a very nice recap. I think the one, um, thing that I that I will add is I think there also has been a movement in economics to recognize that these sort of intense costs being applied to a subset of the population is problematic. And, and I'm curious, Luca, what you think about, I think there's a corollary here with trade. So if we think about international trade, you know, you ask any economist, 99 out of 100 are going to say more international trade is good. More international trade we have, lower prices. We have these cheaper imports coming in. This is better for Americans. We can all go out and buy cheaper goods. But what's also going to happen is that some firms are going to close. There are going to be some factories that are not going to be able to compete now that we have more international competition, and those workers are going to lose their jobs. And I think when we first sort of pushed towards more international trade, we said, let's not worry about those workers that are losing their jobs because we have all these benefits, all these cheaper products. So that's gonna stimulate the economy. There's gonna be new jobs created elsewhere. If you lose your job in the factory, you go elsewhere. Well, I do think one thing that has sort of evolved in economics is we've realized it doesn't work that easily. You know, I wish it did, but what's happened is a lot of those workers who lost their factory jobs, they're not being reemployed in the service sector. A lot of them have just simply exited the workforce. 
you know, through disability, something like that. And so I do think we've also become aware that we need to know that, you know, reducing jobs and, and losing unemployment is very costly. And we just have to be careful to minimize that. Can I answer to this yes, or not? Yes, yeah. Yes. yeah, sorry. I no, I agree that every time there is a big, I mean, trade is another big shock. So there are adjustment shock, right? There are changes in the economy, changes in the sector. And absolutely, there should be something that should go with that. But I think we have to use the right tool to reach the, the right policy. So the, the small business argument, I think is particularly salient coming out of this pandemic because these are also the business, you know, that have less saving to ride, ride out a big uh, uh, cyclical shock as the one that we saw. But I think in that sense, the right tool is to give support to this firm to ride out the cycle, not to say, okay, to defend them, we don't increase the minimum wage is more a, an issue of using the right tool for the, for the right thing. And then it's also true uh, for trade, but that will be too long debate. So let me just stop here. Okay. I have an interesting question now in the chat. How is or should the matter of an increased minimum wage for workers related to the very significant increase in CEO salaries over the past few decades? during a period when the minimum wage hasn't increased. And uh, Paige, why don't we start with you this time? So certainly th this is a big concern. So what we've seen in America, we've seen this tremendous increase in the wages of CEOs. I wanna take it further. It's not just the wages of CEOs, it's the wages of high-skilled workers. And I think part of what we're seeing is the impact of technology. So as technology is increasingly coming into the economy, what this means is that these high skill workers are able to be even more productive. And as they become even more productive, they're capturing a higher and higher share of the rents and they're receiving these higher and higher wage increases. And what's concerning is, you know, we're seeing this path at the same time where we're seeing these stagnating wages for most of America. And I do completely agree with the questioner that this is something that needs to be addressed. I think this is not sustainable in the long run. Um, so certainly raising the minimum wage, absolutely. Again, you know, my point is just make it based on local conditions. You know, otherwise, other approaches is this increase in something like a universal basic income. And what I do like about this is this will also provide benefits to those Americans who are not able to work at the moment. Thanks, Paige. Luca? So I think the, the CEO salary is another good example that uh, labor markets are not in perfect competition, but that wages are a result of a bargaining process, essentially. Okay, so we know that the meeting of the worker and a firm is producing something, there is a pie to share, and that pie can be shared between the worker and the firm. And if the workers have a lot of bargaining power, they get a bigger share of the pie. So there are two things, not only productivity has increasing, has been increasing, but also how that pie, which is the size, how the, the size of the pies have been increasing and how we share the pie has changed. So 
for the CEO, for the highly skilled, they have strong bargaining power on them by themselves because of the skills that they have. If you go down in the skill distribution or down or say on the left of the skill distribution for lower wage worker, that a little bit less the case. So traditionally they've been way to push that bargaining power. Now, many of the way to have that bargaining power have been disappearing. So the minimum wage giving a price floor can give a little bit more bargaining power to these workers. And this is a second point that I want to make. A minimum wage understood in this way as a base on which to have some bargaining will affect workers that are also a little bit above the minimum wage, may increase a little bit their wage too. You know, the same worker can be also a minimum wage worker in a job that you may change your job, you can go a little bit higher. This is a second positive uh, benefit, positive externality on low wage workers that the minimum wage may have. Okay, this next question is for Paige specifically. How are you planning on incentivizing local governments to research their optimized wage and implement and enforce policy? So I would recommend that there is a federal policy. But just instead of the federal policy being a $15 flat minimum wage that is applied evenly in every single community, that it's a formula. So we base it on, let's say, the median wages or some measure of consumer prices in that area. And so this way, it's all based on data that's already being collected. I know the median wages for every single county in America. Um, you know, if we want to base it on consumer prices, we'll have to go a bit bigger, maybe to MSA. But this is data that's collected. And so we could create a formula. That could be the policy. There's no negotiating. The point is just, it's not, you know, smearing this $15 evenly everywhere. It's figuring out what is the best minimum wage for this community versus this community. Okay. And this question is for Luca. Why the number 15? Why not 20 or 25? Yes, I agree. As I was saying before, 15 is not the magic number, okay? The point is that one thing is what we can predict with you know, model or estimates, and there is never a number like 15 that comes out. Another thing is what we want to put in a legislation. So legislation is a compromise we have to set on a number. So the number 15, as I said, I think there are two main drivers of that. So one is that there is a, a calculation that a number 15 would guarantee across the country a living wage, okay? The second is that 15 has already been tested. There is already some evidence. And again, we have to use the evidence carefully. It's not that we can say, you know, since we have seen the increase in Seattle, now we can move it to Mississippi, right? And we can do that differential uh, effect that I was saying before, so that the 15 can be used to infer if the, uh, the impact somewhere else. So to answer, living wage has been used already somewhere else, and that's why the, the 15. It could have been a slightly different number. The fact that it's a round number is more that you know, it's easy to, to implement, to monitor, and so on. A menu cost issue, if you want. 
So a quick follow-up to that, and this is more of a political question now, but do you think 15 is perhaps anticipating a compromise to come later that will eventually go down and, and kind of accommodate the states uh, that, that Paige is talking about, such as Mississippi? I, so I think the, the 15, again, if it's a living wage, if they, it's a living wage in Mississippi, it's a living wage. So I think that's a good standard. Where I think would be interesting to uh, do more policy is on the two, uh, you know, with the two tools that we mentioned. One is, you know, we have been in a massive recession in terms of job loss that has been affected unequally given different business. There have been federal action on that. We have to continue to take that into account when we increase the, the minimum wage. And second is how long we want to take to do that. Even the starting date, you know, this legislation could be signed tomorrow, but the starting date where we start to increase can be decided, you know, to be a later date, to be an optimal date. I think that's where it will be interesting to discuss more the, the political compromise, um, I, I would say. Paige? So if I can just add quickly, um, I, I do think this, this four years is very interesting. And I, I completely agree with Luca that adjustments there probably need to be made. Um, particularly, again, coming right out of the pandemic, we know higher minimum wage is going to disproportionately impact restaurants. And suddenly, you know, we're going to have this giant jump in labor costs for these restaurants. Um, so that that's certainly a concern. But I do sort of want to, to make this point that going to a minimum wage that is 100% of the median wage. So that's what $15 would be in Mississippi. This is really unprecedented. And, and, you know, Luca, I agree with you. There are some beautiful studies that have really nice controls right over state borders, but we don't have any examples of moving the minimum wage so that it is equal to the median wage. And, and that's what I'm concerned about. Why not go slowly? You know, we could do that, but do that maybe in 10 years. Go ahead. Can I, can I follow up? So th there is another interesting point that Paige now mentioned. So we are, we are still are in a big employment and GDP recession due to the pandemic. Is this the right time to increase the minimum wage? So in history, this is exactly what we have done, right? The, the minimum wage was invented during the Great Depression. And the last minimum wage increase was coming out from the Great Recession. So why we are doing that? Because this is exactly a time where there is a lot of labor out there, right? A lot of people have lost their job. Without the minimum wage, that's the moment where the bargaining power of the worker is at the lowest. So then you are almost willing to accept everything or anything. And this may create the trap that I was saying before, because wages don't adjust very frequently. If you adjust to a low wage today, you're going to carry through that wage for almost all the time that you stay with that employer. So this is exactly at the time where we say, okay, now that we reopen the economy, let's reopen it on you know, stronger ground, higher wage, so we are 
in a sense, is creating a magnifier of the stimulus, the fact that we are going to add wages that are a little bit higher. In restaurant industry is going to reopen. Everybody's going to go out again. That's the right moment to have uh, uh, that growth that goes to the worker that earned the least. And again, historically, that's exactly what we have done for these reasons. Okay. We also have a question about automation. How does automation play into all of this? Is, is a higher minimum wage going to force companies to use more automation? So let me start, Luca, on this one, because um, I raised this in my initial talk. So, you know, when, when I think about firms, I think of them as being infinitely creative. So you increase one of their costs, they're going to find some means of adjustment. You know, firms are not going to, you know, immediately say, okay, I have to pay higher wages. Well, I'll just simply accept lower profits. They're going to think about how to re-optimize under this new um, regime, under the regime of a higher minimum wage. And so what are the different ways that they're going to adjust? Well, we've talked a lot about how they're probably going to reduce employment at some level. The other way is that if employees are more costly, then it becomes more likely to be cost effective to simply replace that employee with some form of automation technology. And so one of my concerns is this is what's gonna sort of accelerate an increase of investment in automation in firms, which is, you know, on some ways, not a bad thing. It tends to make companies more productive. You know, technology in itself is not inherently bad, but the worry is that it's gonna cause this displacement to workers. And how quickly is that gonna happen? How quickly can we take these workers who lose their jobs because of automation and re-employ them in the economy. And so I would like to see this happen. It's just sort of a slower pace so that these employees can better find new employment opportunities. I think one other margin of adjustment and just um, to put it out there is my expectation is that firms will also take employees and move them into contract work. So this is another way to kind of get around this is that most contract work is not gonna be covered by minimum wage. You don't want to necessarily pay your workers the minimum wage. There may be some way to, instead of directly employing a worker, you employ some sort of service where it's a self-employed individual who would then do those tasks. So I think automation has been going on for a very long time. And the sector where there is the most automation are now sectors that pay more and much more than the minimum wage. So these include the South. So in the South, there is a lot of car industry, for example, and that's where the big automation has been. It's a process that has been going on for a long time. It's not gonna be affected by the minimum wage today. Because again, it's a much longer term process and there is very little to automate now in the sector that pay the minimum wage. As we said, you know, it's, restaurant industry, care industry. So those impacts are not there uh, anymore and should be very, very, very slow. So I expect a very small impact on, on automation. Can I do a quick rebuttal? Please. So I do agree that we've seen a lot of automation in let's say manufacturing in the auto industry. And, and a lot of that that can be done is done. But what this is gonna do is it's gonna change the economics. You know, it may not have made sense 
to replace a worker that was making minimum wage when minimum wage was $7.25. But if minimum wage suddenly pops up to $15, then I believe that we are gonna see a lot of new technology come to the market because now there's gonna be demand from it from the business side. So I am definitely concerned about this. Of course, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. Okay, we've spoken a lot about regional discrepancies and we have a question here specifically about racial inequalities. So I'm curious here, the person is curious, how will these policies affect racial inequalities? Has the economic scholarship addressed this issue specifically? Who is answering? Any, anyone can take that. Go ahead, Luca. I'm sure. Uh, so what I would say is that uh, some, you know, ethnic groups, some groups, some minority have, have overly represented among low wage workers. So they, and they are underrepresented among the highly skilled high wage workers. So if you were conditioned on race, you will find inequality. Uh, those inequalities are more a function of where these workers are in the wage distribution and in the distribution of skills. They don't have something to do specifically with the uh, actually the race or the minority status, unless there are episodes of explicit discrimination. I don't have, uh, example of literature of explicit discrimination where they say you know based on this color of your skin i put you at the minimum wage or not is more there is a general issue of possible weight discrimination or gender discrimination in the labor market but no more specific to the minimum wage for the minimum wage is that all these trade-offs that we are discussing are going to be on a population of low wage earner that is a population that has a lot of uh, minorities. Paige? I don't, I don't have anything to add. Just again, to, to reiterate Luca's point that among low wage workers, it is disproportionately represented by minorities and women. And so they, they certainly will benefit from a higher minimum wage. Okay. Well, we're, we're beginning to, to wind down now. So uh, we're gonna ask our panelists to offer some summarizing remarks. Uh, but before we do that, I want to let you all know that we're gonna offer a quick survey, just a two question survey based on your experience tonight. So I encourage you to uh, take that when it pops up on your screen. And uh, Paige, well, let's begin with you, uh, since we began with Luca to kick us off, we'll allow you to make your concluding remarks. Great. Um, so in conclusion, I want to argue that increasing the minimum wage is certainly going to be beneficial. It is going to lift millions of Americans out of poverty. It's going to address this issue that we have a significant fraction of Americans who are employed, but not able to cover basic necessities. I mean, this is really a dreadful situation. And my one concern is that we don't want these benefits come from raising the minimum wages of some workers to all come on the backs of a small subset that are gonna end up unemployed 
due to firms readjusting following this increase in minimum wage. Now, exactly what those unemployment numbers are, you know, and where the minimum wage is going to start leading to significant employment costs, I don't know exactly. You know, I, I wish I could tell you that's the million dollar question. But my recommendation would be to go slower and to be very careful about raising the minimum wage too aggressively relative to median wages. And I know I'm kind of harping on Mississippi, but I am very worried about a four-year implementation plan to raise the minimum wage to 100% of the median wage. And I think we could do a much more effective policy by tailoring it to the local labor markets. Myron, yes. So, uh, so I think I would also like to summarize what we say here. I think that our point of agreement were a lot. We all agree that the working poor is an issue. Uh, we all agree that may be some space for that form of price floor that is the minimum wage. Uh, we disagree on, if you want, on the implementation. And we disagree on the fact if this is the optimal policy or not. So I agree it's not the first best, it's not the optimal policy, but I think is a well-tested, easy to implement, well-targeted policy. So there is a lot in favor of this policy and it's not a case that there are almost any country in the world as a form of minimum wage. About the 15, I think the 15 is a level that is will be higher than even in real terms than have been for some time. But I think is due for a pretty high increase. Again, even if we will fix it at 15, we will not recover the worker productivity that we had till the 60s. The rate of growth to 15 will be over four years. It will not will be comparable with, to the increase that we had in the last few rounds. So it will not be much higher. I think that what Paige is saying about local situation is very interesting. I'm not sure if the appropriate tools to do that is to introduce federal differentiation of the minimum wage or a indexing of the minimum wage to something. I think there could be other tools, you know, that could be used together with the minimum wage as a part of a plan coming out of the pandemic. For example, together with the increase in minimum wage, you can continue to have federal program that help small businesses, for example. Or in terms of regional differences, there are other policies that are a better target to do that in my view. Thank you, folks. And we have just a few more uh, questions keep, keep rolling in here, and I want to do my best to get to everyone's. This question is specifically for Dr. Wimay, but, but you both could uh, chime in on it. Speaking of regional differences, someone is concerned specifically about North Carolina and what you think the equitable minimum wage for our state would be. Goodness. Um, I wish I could answer that. I am not prepared to, to answer what a direct minimum wage for North Carolina would be. My sense, though, would be that optimally it wouldn't be one minimum wage for all of North Carolina. I mean, we, we certainly have very different areas, you know, 
where we are now in the Research Triangle Park versus Charlotte versus parts of sort of the Western part of the state. Um, I think my suggestion would be again, focus it on the specific area and think about it in the context of the median wage in that community. That's interesting. So when you say we need to find the optimal wage for regions, you, you don't mean just states, but be even more specific in terms of communities. We collect the data. I mean, we have data on wages in uh, Orange County. We could set minimum wage based on those wages in Orange County. Okay, Luca? I mean, this is exactly the, the problem, right? When, when you say, let's do it locally, then what is the locality we consider? So we go from a nation, then we go to a state, then we go to a county, then we... So then at that point, there is not a minimum wage anymore. So that's a little bit an issue. This idea, the minimum wage, I think it's appealing, exactly because it's a floor for everybody. And then the economies adjust on that and you can transfer. There are some jobs that are non-tradable that are so that they are gonna remain in the local area at higher wages and they're gonna increase uh, consumption and are gonna make that local area attractive for people to continue to work there. So that, that points out, I don't have a specific example on North Carolina, uh, I didn't, uh, do any specific study for, for North Carolina, but it's definitely not a low income state. The fact that the minimum wage is a 725 seems to be more the result of a political process than a result of economic conditions. And what, can I respond? Yeah, I just want to see if I can move Luca a little bit more to the, my idea of using localities. So what if we do it as sort of a hybrid? We set some minimum floor, and then there is this adjustment based on the median wages so that the minimum wage could be even higher in different communities. I mean, I think the, the broad issue here is indexation, assuming that I pronounced that correctly. So that essentially things will go up with an index that could base, you know, with the, could be the salary of the CEO, it could be the salary of the median worker, it could be the locality and so on. So there are examples of using these mechanisms, but I think the, and again, in Europe where, as you can hear, I'm coming from, so Italy has introduced a form of that, you know, already in the fifties. There are other problems because then there is sort of a, self-fulfilling movement of prices when you start to index things. So they may go systematically in divergent direction in different area, or there could be inflationary pressure that is stronger. So there are costs. It's very attractive theoretically, but again, it's something else that becomes complicated in the implementation that we can get wrong. So again, I'm answering this more pragmatically, not even as an economist. If I had to write down the optimal policies much closer to what you're saying, Paige, but in terms of implementation, 
this type of indexation tends to be complicated and have unintended consequences, let's say. Okay. Uh, this is a, a follow-up to the page, to the point the page made a minute ago. If the minimum wage is linked to local area, how do you account for the difficulty that uh, that costs with job mobility? For moving from Biloxi to Los Angeles is almost impossible already, the person says. So I'm not sure I completely understand the question. So the idea is that the wages in Biloxi would be relatively lower because they would have a lower minimum wage. And so this would make it hard for somebody to move out of Biloxi into a higher wage area. I, I certainly think that would be one of the costs of this proposal, um, but I think it could also be beneficial to America as a whole, because this is exactly what we would want. We would want more workers staying in Biloxi, again, leading to sort of more jobs ending up moving to Biloxi, which would then lead to greater economic growth there, as opposed to sort of policies which are drawing all of our workers to some of these high costs, you know, essentially coastal cities, this would allow for employment to be more evenly distributed. Okay. Well, we can, we can stop there. Uh, we got your, your closing remarks already. We thank you very much for engaging in our inaugural uh, debate. And we very much appreciate your, your insight and willingness to engage each other in this important issue. And I just wanna tell you that throughout the discussion, we've had several requests, both for your slides and some of your, your resources in terms of where you find this data about local economics. So perhaps if, you, if you're willing to share your, your slides and, and some of those resources for us, we can post them on our website and we know our audience would appreciate that. So we wanna thank you again to uh, Professor Flabby and Professor Wimay, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Have a good night. Thank you, it was great. Let's do it live next time. I look forward to that day, yes. <laughs>